And may we remember, O Lord, where our only hope, even during this time, is. That we belong to you, our faithful, faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, in life and in death. But heal our land, O Lord. Where you have planted us, would you heal this land? Now, Lord, would you open our ears to receive your word. May we not just during this time be hearers, but hearers who receive and do what it is that you have instructed your people to do. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, would you turn to Judges chapter 17? Judges chapter 17. So we're getting to the end of this book of Judges. Um, so I figured it, it's probably a good time to ask the question that maybe you have wondered from the beginning of the book, or maybe you're trying, you're, you're kind of figuring it out. And the question is, what is the point of this book? Because some people, as we are listening to this sermon series, going, okay, I have had enough. It's like a boxing match. I've gotten a left and a right hook all the time, and it's just hit me left and right. I am just... I'm kind of, I got the point. I got it. But the question is, what is the point? The reality is the author is not just, in this time period, just recording history. It's not just a historical book where we go, oh, okay, this happened at this time, this happened at this time. It's not just that. The author, or some people think that there may have been multiple authors, the, whoever wrote this was an excellent, an expert kind of writer something through the stories of Scripture. And that's why it's important to actually spend some time thinking about what the author is trying to get across in writing the book of Judges. The most common view of why Judges was written was it comes with the statement that is repeated four times in the last five chapters. Repeated four times in the last five chapters. And if you have read it, so far, you, you would start picking up on what are these repeated phrases. And the phrase is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. It's repeated uh, four times in the last five chapters that we're going to be in. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is a repeated phrase. And some people say that the author of, of the book of Judges was actually off, um, kind of arguing that the problem with Israel was that they needed a king. That's what some people would say was kind of what he was kind of writing for. And that, um, in other words, it's building a case for a king like King David. But I'm not so sure about that view. The, the author doesn't paint a very positive view of leaders as the solution to the problems that Israel was having. He does not paint a very good picture of any of the leaders during that time. So I believe that there's another purpose. And one that is just as relevant today as when it was written. And like an expert story writer, the author includes two stories at the end of the book of Judges that bring the problem right to our doorstep. And I'd like to look at these two stories, uh, one today, and then we're going to look at another story at the 
at the end, and I really want to encourage you, next week, read, starting at chapter 9, 19, and read all the way to the end. That is your homework for next week, all right? Um, but I'm going to be looking at these stories today and explain how the problem that he is addressing is still the problem that we are facing today. So let's, let's look and stand for the reading of Micah, oh, Micah, we're reading about Micah, uh, Judges, let's pray before we read, Father God, uh, by your spirit, would you open up our ears, prepare our hearts for your word and the expounding on that word. May we be ready, O oh Lord, to do whatever it is that you are calling us to do this morning. May we have tender hearts to the sin that is residing in our hearts. May we be quick to repent, because all of life is to be one of repentance. So use this. And the Levite was 
contented to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And Micah said, Now I have, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. I'm going to go read on because this is good. And in those days there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself the inheritance to dwell in. For until, there was, for until then, there was no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men to, from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshel, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said, who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, this is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of the Lord, please, that we may know whether the journey on, on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to, said to them, go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there and how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth and how they were far from the Sidonians and had no dwellings, dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtael, their brothers said to them, what do you report? They said, arise, let us go up against them for we have seen the land and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go land, as soon as you go, you will come to an unexpecting, suspecting, unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, sent out from Zorah and Eshtael, and went up and encamped at Kirith-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place was called Manath Dan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kirish Jerem. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. Coming full circle, right? Then the five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that, there, that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, and a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. Beside there, and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah, and asked him about his welfare. Now the 600 men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gold, and the metal image, while the priest stood at the entrance of the gate with the 600 men armed with weapons of war. 
when they went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And he, they said to him, keep quiet. Put your hand on your mouth and come with us and be to us a father and a priest. It is better for you to be a priest to a house of one man or to be a priest to a tribe and a clan in Israel. And the priest's heart, his heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved images and went along with the people. So they turned and departed, putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the house of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out. And they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, what is, the what is the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away. And what have I left? How then do you ask me, what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, hmm. people of Dan said to him, do not let your voice be angry among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made, and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to the people and unsuspecting, and struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rio. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it. They named the city Dan after the name of their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laash at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves and Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image and made him as long as the house, as long as the house God was at Shiloh. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the story starts off with Micah and his mother. It seems like an insignificant story, really. And I'm sure that many, if you are a parent or if you have lived long enough, uh, you may have experienced what Micah's mother experienced, discovering that money has somehow disappeared from your wallet or your purse or piggy bank. Things are gone. And then you figure out that somebody's fingers in the family has become a little... And here the mother discovers that 1,100 shekels is missing, and she curses the person, whoever it may be, that stole from her. So to give you an idea of what 1,100 shekels is worth, it is the 
amount that each of the Philistine governors gave to Delilah for betraying Samson. So that still doesn't help you very much. But later on, you read that a priest who gets a salary of 10 shekels a year, a salary of 10 shekels a year. So this money is, is worth a hundred years worth of salary. 1,100 shekels is 100 years worth of salary. So if that was ever gone from your purse, one, you're stupid for keeping it in your purse. But two, you can understand the gravity of the situation when the mother suddenly discovers that, man, 100 years of this salary is now gone. So we're talking about a huge amount of money here. This isn't $20 gone from your wallet. This is your whole life savings gone, kaput. And then when you hear that your son is stealing this amount from your own, from the mother, you have got to ask, what is wrong with this boy? That he would take this amount of money from his mother. So there's obviously a huge moral defect in the son. You just don't go around stealing your mother's. That is not what being a good son is all about. So there is something definitely wrong with Micah. It's also interesting that Micah doesn't return the money out of deep remorse and just pain from the sin of stealing from his mother. No, the reason that he comes is out of fear of the curse that she has put upon him. He is scared. He is somewhat superstitious. He heard that his mother had uttered a curse, and he did not want the curse to come true about him. And I read about this, and I, and, and I think that something really stinks about this whole situation. Something is really wrong with Micah and his mother, and we read and we realize that the problem is a whole lot bigger than it first appears. So if we just read just those first couple of verses, we go, man, that, you got some family issues. You got some young man issues. You got mom issues. But it's bigger than that. And we don't just have a problem with a son here who is stealing from his mother, it turns out that we have a problem with the whole family. How do you respond when you, you, your son returns what's stolen? Well, she says, blessed be, blessed be my son by the Lord. And that isn't exactly how I would re respond. If I found out that my son had been stealing, he would be coming over my knee and be getting a whooping like he's never gotten before. But she says, blessed be my son by the Lord. He reversed the curse that she had put upon him. And this, honestly, I, I think you are going to realize that she has issues too. You look in verses 3 and 4. After he restored, she, he said, listen, Mom, I've given it back to you. And, but she goes on to say, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from the hand of, from, for my son to make Heart image and a metal image. And therefore, now I restore it to you. So what did he do? The mother took 200 pieces of that stolen money and she made a card, had a silver make other gods. 
ultimately, she sounded a little godly, right? And she wanted to even dedicate them the money to the Lord, which is a wonderful response. But she doesn't present her gifts to Shiloh, which is the place where that money should have gone. Instead, she only gives 200 of those shekels out of the 1,100. And what does she do with it? She makes an idol out of it. And so first, we're, we're talking about only five pounds of silver, which would not have made much of an impressive god, a small god. On top of that, she made an idol. Whether impressive or not, why is she making an idol? And it gets worse. Verses four, 5 and 6. What does Micah do? And the man, Micah, had a shrine. A shrine. And he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his own sons who became the priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. So we have more than just a problem with this young man named Micah. We have a problem with the whole family here. Does anyone here know of families that have problems? Thank you, honey. I appreciate it. Uh, and, and, and I'm talking about, how about just serious problems? Yeah, we, we, can, we can, if we honestly did a poll around this room, you go, oh, I know a family, and some of my own family had some real serious problems. We all do. And at this point, we can just say that we have a, a family with some serious issues, except, and watch this, we somehow get sucked into those serious problems. There's a problem with this boy, but the problem is the boy named Micah. It is with the whole thing leads out. But then the, the author of this section kind of blows out the scope a little bit further, and it turns out that there's even a bigger problem. It's not just the problem with Micah. It's not just the problem with the family. He goes on to say there's a problem with the spiritual leaders of the family. Of, of, the, of the area. The problem isn't just with the son. It isn't with the family. You start to get a glimpse into the bigger problem as the story zooms out to a whole nother level, right? In verse 7, we're introduced to a... It starts off with Micah ordaining his own son, right? His own son to be a priest. And then Micah goes on to look for a professional. He, he finds a young Levite who is passing through and looking for a place to stay. The Levites were of the priestly tribe of Israel. Their job, their role, their responsibility was to be priests for God to the people. This tribe was given the responsibility of spiritual leadership within the leader of all of Israel. That is what they were set aside to do. So Micah meets him and realizes this is a golden opportunity. This is absolutely perfect. And Micah has appointed his own son already to be a priest, but here is his chance to hire a real professional. Son, I love you, but I've got a pro. And Micah says to him, stay with me. 
and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothing, and even your living. This is talking about the whole package. I am setting you up. And what does the young priest do? That young buck agrees. And we read in verses 12 and 13 that Micah ordains this young Levite. He becomes a priest. He stays in the house of Micah. And then Micah gets so gutsy to say, now I know the Lord is going to bless me. I've even got a pastor staying in my house. And he's a pro. He's not my own son. So what we don't read right away is who this priest is. We, we had to wait to the end of the story of chapter 18. Maybe the author is keeping the man anonymous so that we would generalize and just go, man, this can happen to anybody. This nameless priest could be any priest, right? It could be anybody. So he, and this nameless priest, represents the entire tribe of Levi. But we read in Judges 18, verse 30, that this priest indeed has a name, and his name is Jonathan. And it's significant. Not only is his name Jonathan, but we also read that he is a grandson of Moses. What's wrong with hiring a priest? Well, if you're a Levite, you are not supposed to make your services available to the highest bidder. That's not how it works. And not only does this priest hire himself out, he does it for somebody's private and their idolatrous shrine. He, he's become a, a chaplain for the family's uh, idolatrous worship, and Micah thinks that God will bless him because he's hired a priest. One commentator, Bach, writes this. In the words of Malachi, another prophet, the heirs of the covenant of Levi have corrupted their high calling. Instead of serving as an agent of life and peace, revering Yahweh and standing in awe of his name, offering truthful and righteous instruction, turning Micah back from iniquity, this Levite himself The religious establishment in Israel has been thoroughly infected with the Canaanite disease. And don't forget, this just isn't any priest. This is the grandson of Moses. Things have gone downhill fast. So you have a problem with the son, but the problem isn't just with the son. And you have a problem with their whole family, but the problem isn't just with the whole family. It turns out the problem is also the religious leadership of the day. And we're talking about the corruption of pastoral ministry, of representing God to the people. But, and you, you should be able to see this coming with the pattern and the downward spiral. The problem is even bigger than just the religious leadership of the day. It moves on. The problem is with the whole tribe. You start thinking out the problems with the son, then this family, and this religious leadership. But then you come across these people who are the Danites. 
from the tribe of Dan. And you hear in, in chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, in those days there was no king. Again, there was no king in Israel. They, they all did whatever they wanted. And they were looking for an inheritance. These people from Dan were looking for a place for them to live. You see, earlier, when they had the opportunity to move into the promised land, the, the tribe of Dan cared, and they did not want to go in. Now? And they need a place. So what did they do? They sent out five spies into the land. Apparently the first spies that were on the other side of Jordan and scouting out the, the promised land and their report of, you know, you should take, take the land. That report wasn't good. So now they're going to send five spies into the land to, to see if they can find a place to, to live. So they were sent out to explore it. And the problem with, that the Danites face is not that they weren't given an allotment. They actually failed to take possession of the land that was actually promised to them. They were faithless people. And instead of seeking God's help to God's allotted territory, they went looking for land elsewhere. So in verse 3, they stopped by in their spy journey. They stopped by the house of Micah and they recognized the priest's voice. Maybe he had a southern drawl. I don't know. Maybe the tribe of Levi was small enough and well-known enough that they would recognize the voices of these people. Maybe he had a preacher's voice. I don't know. But they recognized this guy, Jonathan, or Micah, had Jonathan as a personal priest. And on the way, the spies realized that, listen, not only does he have a personal priest, but Micah's house contains everything that they need to set up for themselves their own shrine. So what do they do? They go in and steal all of Micah's household gods. First you think, man, who's going to stop him? Well, the priest immediately tries to stop him. And what did he do? He protested until they made an offer. And when the offer was good, he said, man, so I, you're telling me I would not only just be, I can move out of just being a household priest and I can be the priest the whole tribe of Dan? Sign me up. So what does the priest do? It even says in, in verse 20 of chapter 18 that his heart was glad. Like, this is a good deal. Man, Micah, thank you. But I get, I get to oversee a, a bigger group of people. And my friends, this still happens today. This still happens today. Daniel Block writes this. Commentary said this the question the Danites pose to him is asked every day by pastoral search committees. Which is better to be the pastor of a small family or to be the pastor of a mega church? The contemporary problem of ambition and opportunism in the ministry has at least a 3,000 year history. 
And I'm going to tell you, it is an idol in the heart of pastors. When you look at the sizes of church and churches and the budgets that they have and the number of people that they have, and you go, why would I want to be in a podunk town like Manhattan? When I could be here. And the salary package. And maybe they even have people who have lake cottages where I can go vacation or winter homes where I can. Why would I stay here? So it's a 3,000 year problem that is a problem for everybody who is in the ministry. And the priest goes on to say, even in verse 27, that they attacked and they burned the city of Laash, who the people were, they were quiet and they were unsuspecting people. And the story ends where they burned down the city, they rebuilt it, and they lived in it. They named the city. Do you hear the pride? What did they name the city? Dan, after our own forefather. Um, the, but the author was very clear, but just for the record, the name of the city was Laash at the first. And the, and the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were the priests to the tribe, priests to the tribe, priests to the tribe of the Danites, until the day of captivity in the land. The problem, it turns out, is, is not just with the son. The problem is not just with the family. The problem is not just with the religious establishment. The problem is with the entire tribe of the nation. The entire tribe had been corrupted. And in fact, the good guys, the uh, Israel, have become now the bad guys. And the bad guys, the Canaanites, who were quiet and unsuspecting people, are now the good guys. Israel has sunk to the level of the Canaanites. The people of God had now gone low. They're now even worse. So you've got the sons stealing from the mothers, the mothers building idols, priests were hired for, to the highest bidder, idolaters worship the slaughter of a peaceful people, and it's a total mess. The corruption is at every different level. It's systemic. There isn't a single admirable character in any of these two chapters. No one, according to Daniel Block, devotion to Yahweh. No one demonstrates any concern for national well-being. No one behaves with any integrity. The integrity of the entire nation is at stake. So with this story in mind, and everything that we've covered up to this point, what is the point of the book of Judges? I think this is a perfect story to get to the root, the real root of the purpose and the relevance of the book of Judges. I want to get at it in two different ways. By asking what is our problem and what is the solution. What is our problem? Judges is clear that we have a problem and we have a serious problem. 
It's not just a problem of a person or a family or a particular pastor or a particular group. It's every person. It is every family. It is every pastor. It is every group. That is what the author of Judges is just kind of nailing. It's not just a person. It's not just a family. It's not just that pastor. It's not just that ministry. It's just not that region. It is everybody. It's not just the problem of people who even lived far ago in a time thousands of years ago. It's not just even them. It is our problem as well. One commentator wrote this. We must not be so naive to, to imagine that this to be a problem confined to ancient tribal community. We can't be so naive. He goes on to say, the essence of idolatry is to want to bring God within our pockets so that we can control him. Foolishly, we imagine that we can deal with the source of life on the same level as ourselves so that we can bribe him or drive a bargain or compel him to give us what we want out of life. Above all and at all costs, what natural human beings want is a God that will not make demands on our life. Let me reread that last sentence. Above all and at all costs, human beings, all of us, what we want is a God, little g, that will not make demands on our lives. I think that we need to be clear that this is our problem too. The problem is idolatry. It has affected each and every one of us, and as John Calvin has said, that our hearts are like uh, factories for idols. We are constantly idolatrous people making and replacing another idol. Idolatry happens anytime that we make good things, ultimate things, when we value anything more than we do our God. And ironically, idol worshipers often think that they are worshiping God and do not realize that, like Micah and the entire tribe of Dan, that they have made a religion in what God, in which God revolves around them. Idolatry is the default mode of the heart, and it has affected and infected us. Judges is written to tell us that we have a deep problem, and the problem is not what we think. It is much, even much deeper. Heart level, deep level sin issues. And you might remember the question that I asked at the beginning of the whole series in Judges by uh, C.K. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, when he wrote, was asked the question, what is wrong with the world? And his response is, I am. I am the problem with the world. And I don't know any book that brings that issue home more clearly than we can't look at other people as the problem. And may this be something that echoes in your head, in your heart, 
as we navigate the next few months in our political uh, times. The problem is not those other people. It's really easy to point the finger at them, isn't it? Whoever them is. The Republicans, the Democrats. Maybe it's time to look at our own heart and say, maybe I am the problem. We can't look at other people. The problem is us, but it's not, my friends, it's not just us. What's true of us as individual individuals is also true of us as families. It's also true of us as within the religious leadership of a church. It's also true in fact, of entire groups of people. We're often guilty of the very thing that we have found here in today's story. We, we do not act as if we, uh, if we exist to serve God. We use God as a means to our ends. Instead of serving God, we want God to serve us. We want God to serve our dreams. We want God to serve our political uh, agendas. We want God to our request. We still believe in God, oh yes, but our lives don't really ultimately revolve around Him. It, he is revolving around our dreams, our hopes, our fears, our desires. And we expect God to adapt to us. That's what we want. I like that kind of God. A God that adapts to me. And judges is important because we have a tendency, all of us have a tendency to underestimate our problem. And judges, and in fact the whole Bible, won't, won't let us away with this. What is the problem with your life? And what is the problem, even the problem with our church? Well, you can, you can answer that we need to maybe lose 10 pounds or maybe make, uh, make more money or maybe we need to get more organized at the church level. Maybe you can say, man, we just need stronger and better leaders. Or maybe we just need better structures. But Judges points to a deeper problem. And the solutions go beyond trying harder or getting a king or a better judge or a better president. The problem with the world is us, my friends. The problem is that we need new hearts. We need new hearts. So what is the solution? What is the solution? A lot of people think that the purpose of Judges was to argue for kingship. Judges 18.1, in those days there was no king in Israel, and a lot of people take cues from this and think that Judges was written from a point of need for, the, for a king to change the people's heart. And in other words, to build defense for the Davidic kingship that is to come. But if you know anything about David or any of the other kings of Israel, you know that they, they sometimes provided help. But often they were no better than the judges. 
This book doesn't give a rosy view of, of leadership as the answer to every problem. The problem is with leaders. We are all, my friends, we are all the problem. And the problem is much deeper than uh, a new king or a new pastor or a new president or a new leader. The problems are far too deep and a new leader can maybe give a short-term help. Maybe. But there's a, a deeper problem. And I believe that Judges was written to God's people for the purpose to demonstrate the depth of a problem and to call us to the only true solution, which is to return to the God that we have abandoned. Judges is saying, come back. Come back to him. In other words, it's, it's a book that shows us the condition of our heart, and it's a book that calls us to repentance. The Christ alone, our cornerstone, is enough. He is enough. And we as American Christians have largely forgotten our covenant Lord. We really have. And we have taken his gracious work on our behalf for granted. And like the people of Israel, we, we get squeezed into the mold of the world around us. We are preoccupied with materialism. We worship on our own terms. Our values are similar to the world around us. We are reluctant to hear God's call into, into service. We are more prone to pray, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is. That is how we often pray instead of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't live God's priority. We fight the Lord's battle with our own resources. And Judges shows us that this is our problem. And it shows us where it ultimately leads. Death. Destruction. And it's not a pretty picture. The problem is that we do need help, friends. And that help has to come from outside of ourselves. Because all of us have been affected. We have all fallen in the pit, as it were, and therefore nobody is able to lift us out from the pit. The psalmist even talks about, I was in the miry clay. And the psalmist couldn't even get himself out of the miry clay. The Lord had to lift him out of the miry clay and set his feet on solid ground. We need someone to help us who is not a part of the problem. And there is a leader who eventually does come, who has not fallen alone, is able to solve that problem. That problem and the problems of our world. He is the judge that Israel, a king who is better than David. And this man, his name is Jesus. 
Judges invites us to return to God in repentance, and the rest of the Bible comes in and tells us that God has provided that perfect, righteous judge, a judge that the judge that these people never had, the judge that the people desperately needed to deliver us not only from our and ourselves. And so I'm going to invite you, my friends, to come to that judge. Return to him. Return to Jesus. Get your eyes off the political scene for one day, one week, maybe a whole year. Return to Christ. The German pastor and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this in his book, Life Together. Our salvation is from outside of ourselves. Extra nos is a Latin word. I find salvation.